Yeah. Yeah. Yes, money exposes our desires in that way. And so it, it might seem like a, a, a very rational act, but maybe this more than anything illustrates the way that we are desiring uh, loving creatures and that our hearts are exposed by, um, by money and the decisions we make with it. We'll talk a lot about that. Yeah, Sarah. I don't mind like yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. It's personal. Don't, don't meddle. Yeah. Yeah, Melanie. Yes, and there's a great quote coming up that that gets at that, where there is there is a sense in which we have invested uh, in something, and we've been we've been compensated for something that we've done. So there is a legitimate sense in in which we say this does represent me in some way, not exhaustively, but yeah, it's it's putting yourself out there some. Yeah, yeah, Alexis. Yes, yes, that this is a, um, there are not clear-cut kind of black and white categories. I mean, there, there are certainly some principles and things that help us, but it's not a categorical, neat and tidy sort of thing for every person. Yeah, yes. Actually, what it, what it boils down to is Jesus said, where your treasure is, is where your heart is. And so when we start talking about money in a church, I think it exposes our heart. Yes. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're uncomfortable. You know, that's one of those little hidden things, you know, my treasure really is somewhere else. Right. And when we bring that back down to aligning that with, with the Word of God and, and Jesus Christ, we're uncomfortable. Right. My treasure's somewhere else, and I'll thank you not to point that yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a couple more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there, there's, it's kind of a social faux pas. You don't want to, um, yeah, it, it's, it could be tacky uh, in, in certain contexts in the way in which you might talk about it. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Well, um, yeah, I, th- those are, I had a lot of those down here. A few others. Uh, I think we have a, and maybe this is connected to all these, we've kind of got a constant sort of low-grade guilt going about our wealth. Um, we have the kind of guilty Westerner sort of thing happening because you, you look and you hear the stories, see the pictures of third world countries. And, um, and so we, uh, particularly as Western American Christians, have this kind of low-grade guilt going, and we don't really know what we're supposed to do with that. And, and there's sort of the two extremes of what God wants more than anything else is poverty and sort of this view, this mistaken view that poverty is essentially good. And certainly there are examples of people thinking that in the history of the church. But then there's also the, the other side that is that wealth is what God wants for his people. And probably in the most crass way, that's the prosperity gospel. That, um, that money, more money equals being more blessed. And so what we essentially end up doing is kind of baptizing our consumerism and our materialism. And then um, kind of as a way to deal with this sort of guilt that, that's uh, ever present to us. So, um, and I've got a quote here. This is at the risk of heaping more guilt on us. Uh, but I, I do think this is telling. And I mean, it'd be naive to say that we are not a wealthy and materialistic nation or even just in the West generally. 
Uh, 50 years ago, Americans consumed half as many goods and services per person as they do today. During the same amount of time, the size of homes tripled. Every day we buy more clothes, appliances, cars, books, televisions, computers, and so forth, simply because we can and often when we can't. Some sociologists have named this propensity to continually purchase and consume more affluenza. And you might remember uh, last summer, yes, the trial, there was a six, I think a 16-year-old boy that uh, was drunk and got in a big pickup truck with some of his friends and killed, hit and killed some people down south, um, just south of the Metroplex. And then when it went to trial, uh, he was, I think he was just given like probation and mandatory um, community service, but yeah, rehab. Yes, rehab. And actually, I just saw in the paper yesterday that they're not, that all these places are not accepting him or something like no, that. They, it was originally him. parents were going to pay for it, and now they've decided that parents are paying for it. Basically, effectively, two days for the cost of a three month. Right, okay, yes. And, and, and what the judge had said about this, and the reason for the, the very light sentencing, was because he was suffering from affluenza. That, that he had grown up in an environment um, where he didn't have uh, legitimate or like the, the, the moral compass that others do because of this freedom that he had to have anything he want whenever he wanted. We could talk plenty about that, but um, an example of how serious this is. Okay, what is stewardship? Uh, sometimes in other, uh, in other spiritual discipline books, they'll talk about it as frugality. Other times it's connected to something called simplicity. But that simplicity is a bit broader than that. I think stewardship is the best term for this, although it's not a word that we use as often. And we'll see why I think that is in a moment here. Uh, a couple definitions. In frugality, we abstain from using money or goods at our disposal in ways that merely gratify our desires or, uh, desires or hunger for status, glamour, or luxury. Practicing frugality means we stay within the bounds of what general good judgment would designate as necessary for the kind of life to which God has led us. And then from Calhoun, and she does this frequently. She talked about uh, fasting in this way, too, and sort of broadening it out beyond just financial stewardship. So she says stewardship is the voluntary and generous offering of God's gifts of resources, time, talents, and treasure for the benefit and love of God and others. And initially, I was hoping to talk about time, but we didn't have time for it. So uh, we're just going to talk about finances in this regard. Okay, relevant biblical passages. The most basic thing we need to understand is just that everything belongs to God, as the scriptures speak of all over the place. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Exodus 19, for all the earth is mine. Job 41, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So this is so important because this is ultimately the reason that, one, we are able to give and that stewardship matters. And it's also, that, secondly, the reason that we're called to give is because everything belongs to God. And so everything that comes to us is a gift. And that's a fundamental category through which we should view all of our lives. It's a gift from God to us. So he's king overall. And that is this image that's put forward in Genesis 1 in the creation account. God speaking and things happening. He's bringing order from chaos. Uh, he, he, he's pictured then at the end on the seventh day as sitting down and enjoying all that he's made as a king would after his creation. But he's also given responsibility to us as well to serve uh, beneath him. 
uh, as stewards over this world. That's why this term, I think, is the best one for it, because stewardship is rooted in creation. So listen here to the, this royal language that's given. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, kingly language, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, here's the command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we are called to steward all things that the, the whole of our lives, the, the, the call even. And you could say this is in this context integral to being the image of God is that we are stewards that there is a royal function to every human we're called to live in this world in such a way that it reflects God's glory we're supposed to care for it in the way that he cares for it we're to use it and exercise dominion in ways that God uses it Uh, and so all of this uh, is meant to show forth his glory in the world and then in uh, Genesis 2 The call to the man there is to work it and keep the garden. So to cultivate, uh, to bring forth its potential. So this is this fundamental calling. This is why Proverbs can talk about the rich man being blessed. Here's where we get into wealth. Because it's a gift. That's why. So what's so important about this is that we cannot say that wealth in and of itself is evil. Okay? Good quote from Willard. Wealth is is but a part of created reality pronounced by wealth is is but a part of created reality pronounced by God pronounced by God as good. Sorry, messed up on that quote there. Uh, It's good. That's the point. Um, and, And here's the here's an important point for us to wrestle a bit with. Possessing is not the same thing as trusting in. Okay. Uh. This quote from Willard picks up halfway through some other thoughts, but it'll become clear what he's saying. Frugality is both a discipline and a primary Christian virtue, but it must be noted that such failures concerning the use of goods, not their possession. Okay, so the issue that we're going to be talking about here is how we use these gifts, um, which is a separate one from possessing them in the first place. So here's what he says. Poverty and wealth, on the other hand, have to do with the possession of things. Condemnation and guilt over mere possession has no part in scriptural faith and is in the end only a barrier to the right use of the riches of the earth. Again, think about this in terms of stewardship. Possession is not to be equated with something evil. It's a gift of God. The question of whether something is good or evil is how you then steward those gifts. Okay. If we try and I just say in this next quote to possess riches is to have a right to say how they will or will not be used could be good or evil to trust in riches. On the other hand, is to count upon them to obtain or secure what we treasure most. This is where it gets problematic, where we trust in them. It is to think that they'll bring us happiness and well-being when we also possess the richer riches. We trust the, the riches. We trust him. Okay, I was doing a dictation thing on these, Um, and that's not, yeah, so I thought that I had avoided the problem with these. Not so. Uh, When we also possess the riches we we trust in, we may suppose that we are secure, like the rich fool of the gospel account, we'll look at that in a second, or even suppose that we are better than those who are poor. If we trust in riches, we also love them and come to serve them. 
And our actions will place them above the truly ultimate values of human life, even above God and his service. So stewardship, as we talk about this, is a matter of how we use these gifts, how we use these resources that God has given to us. Okay? It's important to remember as well that, uh, and we'll look at this passage, Paul in Philippians 4 talks about learning how to be content, not just in poverty, he says in abundance as well. So uh, I think that's a great passage as we think about stewardship, that um, on the one hand, it's almost irrelevant what you have or how much you have. The question is, how will you steward what you have? So that's what this discipline is about. Uh, and that's what what we're getting at here. So really, we could this is uh, this conversation is for every Christian, all Christians in all parts of the world. OK, um, so why is the practice of stewardship so difficult? Here are just a few reasons, some of which we've already hit upon. Let me back up. Is there, are there questions about that distinction between possessing and trusting in? That's a really important one. Yeah, John. Yes, please. Even to possess provides you temptation to control how it's allocated. I think that's one of the biggest problems with money is that you have control and you have the money. And if you're in a church that can't even use it, you don't like it because they hold your tithe. Yeah. You're not like saying anything by that, are you? (laughs) Just all right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. And we'll get at this because there is, I mean, there is real. I'm going to be careful I say this because this might make someone comfortable. We can talk more about it. But um, there is genuine cultural capital or cultural power that comes with resources. That's real. That's built into creation. That's how God intended things to be. And so there's going to be a real responsibility and a different set of temptations for those that have significant resources, for sure. Um, We'll also talk about how um, the love of money can be just as paralyzing and as uh, devastating to those without resources, sometimes even more so. Um, so yes, there, there's a there is a particular set of temptations that would go with the possession, but the fundamental call to steward is the same across the board. Okay, so why is this difficult? Um, it's difficult most fundamentally, I think, because our use of money shows what we love. It exposes our hearts. So you hear people say, "You're not sure what you love. You're not sure what you trust in. Take a look at your bank statements, and that will help you see." What you love, where your heart is. Um, let's open to Mark 10. I know usually I have everything printed, but this is one that's going to be a little longer. Uh, we'll look at Mark 10. This is Jesus with the rich young man. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. And he was setting out on his journey. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. 
This is to say, uh, as the Ten Commandments intend, that we would have a right love of God and love of neighbor. That's going to become important. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, important right here, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So what Jesus has done right now is he's found he's exposed where his heart really is. He's exposed what he's actually worshiping, what he actually loves. And it's not God and neighbor in the right way. Uh, And he looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. You got ESV. You'll see there it's footnoted there that there's a textual variant that says that where some have inserted for those who trust in riches. Uh, It's important that that was not deemed to be the most faithful reading uh, on this and that Jesus Uh, rightly, this is a more difficult saying, is saying it's difficult for anybody to enter the kingdom of God. That's important. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. We can stop right there. Uh, The point is this, that uh, that Jesus has shown this man's true object of worship and trust, and it's not him. Uh, And then passage from Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Uh, Look at 21 for where your treasure is there, your heart will be. And then here's a quote from Donald Whitney. Uh, This gets at Melanie at what you had said earlier, because we invest most of our days working in exchange for money. There's a very real sense in which our money represents us. Therefore, we use it to express who we are, what our priorities are, and what's in our hearts. It's inevitable. That's the way things are. So there's a a good sense of that as well. Uh, Another reason this is difficult, because the love of money is deceptive. It can come veiled as common sense or just good financial planning, right? Matthew 13, 22. Uh, This is in the parable of the soils. uh, And this is the third soil. Here's the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And then you see in first Timothy six, there's these negative and initially unintended consequences for this love of money. Uh, Yeah, let's see here. Uh, Nine, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Thirdly, love of money is an enslaving master. Uh, Jesus, again, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters for either he will love or he will hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And then from Proverbs, whoever trusts in his riches will fail or will fall. A good quote from Willard. In the absence of a vividly superior life in God's kingdom, wealth creates in most of us an illusion of security and well-being that causes us to trust it rather than the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Those in the grip of this illusion will then certainly be the servants of money, of mammon, not of God. And that will seem to them just plain good sense. It's deceptive in that way. Um, Debt 
is certainly an aspect of this that would be considered an enslaving master to us. And then some other quotes here that get at how uh, a love of money doesn't mean that you possess that money. So uh, those without significant resources can also fall prey to this love of money. It just takes a different form. That's what uh, Willard gets at here. Those poor people whose faith is in riches they neither own nor can use are among the most unhappy people on earth. No one loves and trusts money more than those who have none. Huh? Um, I don't know if I'd say it that categorically, uh, but I think that um, it's certainly a real temptation. Uh, in any case, the delusions caused by possessions cannot be prevented by having none. And that's the, the section is what he's getting at where he's talking about poverty and St. Francis who tried to give away all that he had. And he just says, that's not going to solve this issue for us. We do, not have, we, we do not have to own things to love them, trust them, even serve them. And I think that's well said. Uh, practice of stewardship can then also be done with wrong motives, which makes this hard. Um, Jesus speaks against doing this in order to be seen. Remember, this comes in the context of prayer and fasting as well. These three things that are very, very tempting to do in a way that would show forth um, how great we are. Another, another uh, wrongful motive would be reluctantly or under compulsion, which is to say not out of joy and gratitude. 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, little caveat with that. There are times where it's going to be uncomfortable to give. Uh, that's not, uh, there, there's not, I'll say that that's not what uh, Jesus is speaking against here. I think we need to understand, and this is part of viewing this as a discipline, uh, that it's going, this is a desire that's going to be cultivated over time. Um, just as there are times where we don't want to pray. It's not, it would go into prayer of this joyful attitude, or I really want to study the scriptures or memorize the scriptures or whatever. Uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do them then, right? Uh, the, this, is, uh, this is something that we, we want to work towards developing over time. And so there's going to be mixed motives as we walk that path. Okay, thirdly then, so why, why should we practice stewardship? What are the purposes or results, things, benefits that can come of this practice? Uh, first is uh, most important. Practicing stewardship is an act of worship. Uh, that's why it's an element in Christian liturgy. Uh, it, it is an act of worship for us. And Paul says this in Philippians 4, I've received full payment and more, I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, this is Old Testament sacrificial temple kind of language, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That's a New Testament financial gift to Paul being described in that way. Secondly, practicing stewardship promotes gratitude to God. And so this is where we're talking about shaping our desires. This practice does that. It promotes a, an attitude and heart of gratitude. It's not automatic. It's not, uh, it doesn't happen uh, magically. But this is where we want to emphasize the role of practices um, as ways that our hearts and loves are shaped and redirected. Um, that's not all. It's not a like a mechanistic sort of practice, but it's something. It's a piece of the whole that will eventually <laughs> result in gratitude towards God. 
So it makes us grateful people to give. Practicing stewardship exposes our enslavement to the idols of materialism and greed. And that's a pretty broad category um, when we just throw out materialism like that or even greed. Uh, because th- there can be all sorts of uh, narrower sort of uh, idols or more specific ways in which we are enslaved to, to idols beneath that. And I've tried to give a few of them that are pretty common. Um, one is that we, we want wealth as a means of status. Now, the way we think about this ni- initially is that uh, we want people to see us and see what we have, what we possess, or what we do with our money and to receive their affirmation, praise, and high esteem. Uh, This works a different way as well, though. Um, This could look more like your significant discomfort with letting on to the fact that you do have resources because you're uncomfortable with the way in which God has bestowed blessing upon you in that way or what he's called you to steward. And so we we downplay, like, for instance, maybe we're more comfortable with the status of middle class rather than upper class. And so we intentionally, not out of like a good motive that we want to use these resources elsewhere, but just because we don't want people to see us and we care so much about their opinions that we try and live at a lower level. Do you see that distinction? Uh, It's still exposing insecurities. They're just of a different sort. And we're still trying to assuage those insecurities by means of money. Okay? So that goes both ways. It's not just opulence and... Looking like you've got everything. It could also be like, uh, no, I don't want you to know that I have these things because I'm, uh, I have not yet come to a place um, where I'm comfortable with what God has bestowed upon me and called me to steward. Yes, as long, yeah, peace of mind defined as um, not just like a callous heart that's become comfortable with unhealthy, selfish practices, but one where you have sought reflectively the, um, what God has bestowed upon you. And, and, and this could probably and likely needs to have, like you need to have other people involved in your life that are helping you wrestle with those questions too, of what's appropriate for you to be giving. Some people that you can trust and um do what yes yeah where contentment's been um reached in that way um and as alexa said earlier it's different for everybody which makes this so hard because it's so easy to look at somebody else and say i wouldn't be doing that you know like i I would never be comfortable with that well on the one hand it's like you don't have to be comfortable with that because god hasn't given you that you know (laughs) and that's okay um and so that, that there's going that there's going to be a um, a little bit more of a gray it's a gray area in that way. Um, but you would be great about having yes, I, I th- well, I mean, working towards that, constantly presenting that before the Lord and uh, asking Him to search you and know your heart and expose the ways that might be unhealthy and unhelpful in how you're handling your resources. Yes, Max. Uh, 
the temptation will certainly still be there. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, it would depend on how you uh, how you talk about enslavement. Like when I say enslavement, there, I mean uh, you've got to qualify that and say Romans six. You are no if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. Sin is not your master. You are not enslaved to an idol in that way. Now, functionally, in the mixed way, the battle that's still at work in our hearts, Galatians 5, spirit warring against the flesh within us, there is going to be real temptation to these. And so for us to still, uh, to still worship these other idols to a degree and have kind of mixed motives, mixed hearts, that, I think that's a very real, um, that's reality, I think, for a lot of Christians. But there's not going to be a totally pure, yeah, no. Yes. 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 Well said. Well said. Well, in yes. I mean, in uh, Philippians uh, four ten, um, one of the my favorite things that that Paul's saying here. He's talking about them giving him this gift and how much he appreciates it and he, you know, and everything. Uh-huh. But then he says, you know, I know how to have a lot. Mm-hmm. I know how to have a little because I learned the secret. Yeah. And the secret is that I can do all things through Christ. The secret is, is if we keep our hearts and minds and eyes centered on what I'm, what's the goal here? To be conformed to the image of Christ. Yes. Then that takes a lot of that yes. out, of your, out of your life. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and a process by which that happens is going to be even exposing the ways that that's not occurring. Um, yeah, that's great. Um, let me continue to move through these other ways this enslavement occurs or looks. As a means of security, it's huge, and that would be tied to control. It's, I don't, it's kind of arbitrary to have those divided. Uh, as a means of escape, uh, retail therapy, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, I just need to go buy things. I'm going to feel better. You know, Um, that's probably the most uh, maybe the most obvious way that that would occur. But then with control, uh, again, I want to make this point. You can be enslaved to money uh, without it being evident in an extravagant lifestyle. Okay, Uh, this came home to me as we were dealing with house problems at our house in Indiana. We had a flooded basement that happened while we were the owners in a 50 plus year old house. And so I was riddled with anxiety over this issue. Uh, are we going to be able to sell the place if we don't? Uh, is this going to ruin us financially? Uh, are we going to be under this thing forever? Uh, that was being enslaved to money and to wealth, uh, but really as a means of control because I was thinking, I, I'm not going to be okay if this happens. Um, so it doesn't mean that it's necessarily an extravagant lifestyle that would uh, would show that you're in the control of wealth in that way. Um, it could be something like that. Uh, practicing stewardship frees us from bondage to debt. Talk some about this. I'll leave that Willard quote for you to read later that gets at the spiritual dynamic of the problems of debt. And then practicing stewardship teaches us contentment. Philippians 4 passage that we're just discussing here. I know how to be 
uh, he says, I know how to, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I do all things through him who strengthens me. So a couple things to notice. One, this is learned for Paul. He's learned how this has occurred. Um, secondly, and we've mentioned this, it's both in plenty and hunger, abundance and need, uh, that this is, needs to be uh, worked out. F, practicing stewardship enables us to give of our time and talents for the glory of God and the good of others. So this is what I was getting at earlier. Um, this is how God exercises power and resources. It's for the good of this created world. Okay, And so our call in the way in which we would steward these things and exercise dominion and be fruitful and multiply is taking these resources that God has given us and using them in a way akin to the way that he would. Okay, It's working towards, it's working towards the good in some way. And this is really important because um, you hear the word power or resources and immediately think of Jesus's prohibition against the abuse of power in passages like Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. After he's talked about how the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and abused their power. And so we want to eschew power and that maybe wealth can bring um, because we think power is the problem. Power is not the problem. Our abuse of power is the problem. Power is built into creation and is a gift that's been given to us. And it's something that we're called to steward. And financial resources are huge in that way. And so uh, this is where I think we can get off track real easily. And, um, and we can end up squandering the uh, resources that God's given us. Here's a quote from Willard. Possession and direction of the forces of wealth are as, a legitimate, are as legitimate as expression of the redemptive rule. That's the way of him talking about the kingdom of God. Redemptive rule of God in human life as is Bible teaching or prayer meeting. For example, it's as great and as difficult a spiritual calling to run the factories and the mines, the banks and the department store, stores, it's not stories, the schools and government agencies for the kingdom of God as it is to pastor a church or serve as an evangelist. Uh, we are, we're called to, uh, to steward those gifts to ends that are in line with the kingdom of God and to use those things in that way. Uh, that's a, a big topic to talk about power, resources, capital in that way. So there are a couple books there that are really, really helpful on this front. Uh, practicing stewardship is an embodied act of turning from trust in money to trust in God. Emphasize this in other, in other disciplines, that there's an embodied act of this. Even you taking this uh, check and putting it in the offering plate can be a significant thing. I know some people that specifically don't do an auto draft because they want this liturgical act of do of putting a check in every week um so yeah again not a guarantee but it's a practice that we should take seriously um giving requires trust in god um, it's this concrete act showing that everything belongs to him and that we're trusting him to provide uh that passage we've already read from second corinthians 9 here's a basic principle from uh donald whitney this could be uh, overstated it might be a bit simplistic in how he says this or it needs to be qualified some but it stands i think as a basic principle that we will give to the extent that we believe god will provide for us you could see how that could be taken the wrong way and where it 
violates a category of wisdom as well. The more we believe God will provide for our needs, the more we are willing to risk giving to him. And the less we trust God, the less we will give to him. It needs to be qualified, but there's a fundamental truth to, uh, to his basic point. Uh, practicing stewardship results in joy and blessing in Christ. Uh, again, the, the greater context there of 2 Corinthians 9, just look at 11. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Uh, and then Matthew six nineteen through 21 talks about these treasures um, that really comes in uh, this joy and this blessing in Christ. Uh, it shows our goodness and generosity to the world. Does this in a couple ways. One, in our responsible and faithful management of our money. That's one way that it bears witness to the world. Another way, though, are the ends towards which we give our money uh, that would show to the world the ways that, uh, that, that reflects the kingdom and uh, priorities of the kingdom in that way. Okay, quickly, how can we begin to practice this? Uh, most significantly, meditate on the generosity of Jesus to you. This is what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 8. Just steep yourself in this. Bask in this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Bask in the gospel. Bask in the grace that has been shown to you. That's what gives us generous hearts. <coughs> Specifically, this might not be what you expected to hear, but the first and probably most significant step you could take practically is to get on a budget if you're not on one already. Uh, take the financial peace uh, class with Dal and with Kevin. Um, read Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover. Get on a budget. You can use this. Uh, Mint.com is a free online way to do your budgeting. It's great. Or Envelopes, which is a, a software program that's connected with Dave Ramsey's stuff. So getting on a budget is huge in this way uh, in order to allow uh, this next point, planning to give generously, wisely, and systematically. Uh, so that can be a huge help in general. And so then plan to give generously, wisely, and systematically. And the systematically part helps in terms of it being a discipline and a practice over time. I uh, don't have time to get into it. Uh, 10% uh, is not... I don't believe what God calls us to in the New Testament. Uh, and actually, even in the Old Testament, there were more than just 10% of your resources that were given. It had to do with uh, your possessions and property and land and fruit of your crops, etc. Um, it could be a good starting point, although I know some people who don't even like to talk in numbers because they don't want to bind somebody's conscience in that way. Here's where it gets really uncomfortable from this excellent quote from C.S. Lewis. So there's not a number. So what do we do? Well, here's what he says. I do not believe one can settle how much we, we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule was to, is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving too little away. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. That's one of those like ridiculously convicting quotes from from uh, one of many in that book. Uh, and then increase your percentage uh, if when you get a raise over time. Um, good quote from Willard. Organized churches must become schools of spiritual discipline where Christians are taught how to how to own without treasuring, how to possess without like the rich young ruler being possessed, how to live simply, even frugally through controlling great wealth and power. Questions for reflection there and then a couple uh, sections from Willard's book. Let me, uh, let me pray for us.